Welcome to the Heartland Free Church Sermon Podcast. We are so happy to have you joining us today. If you are a first-time listener or first-time visitor here at the church, we would love to get connected with you. You can click that link in the podcast summary. That is our online connection card. If you'd just like to learn more about us as a church, you can visit heartlandfree.com or you can download the Heartland app in whatever app store you prefer. Thank you again for joining us. We've got a fantastic message for you this morning, and we will be getting into that right now. Have you ever played the game Jenga? I just was uh, learning a little bit about this game. Uh, It's a tower consisting of 54 wooden blocks. Uh, You build the tower, and then players take turns removing one block at a time and placing it on top of the tower creating a more and more unstable structure until finally the tower falls. The winner is the last person to successfully remove a block without toppling the tower. Folks, I feel like our whole country is in the middle of a game of Jenga right now, and we are growing more and more unstable day by day. One could make an argument that our soaring national debt alone may be sufficient to topple us. I can hear our politicians uh, sitting there in Washington, D.C., saying to each other, I wonder what will happen if we add another trillion to the debt. So they take out that block, and they add another children, and they look at each other, and they go, oh, well, look at that. It's still standing. But how long? Venezuela, here we come. (laughs) They played that same game, and it worked for a long time, taking out block after block until finally you know what's happened in Venezuela. Now, a problem even more serious than our national debt is the eroding of our moral fiber. For the last 50 years, we've been removing one Jenga block at a time, and the tower gets shakier, doesn't it? Soaring divorce rates, legalized gambling, rising cohabitation rates, legalized marijuana, Gay marriage, soaring racial tension, defund the police, soaring hookup culture, an explosion in suicide rates, changing gender identities. Just like the national debt, each time a block of our moral fiber is removed, once again, the politicians look at each other and say to each other, well, look at that. The country is still standing. Congressman Jerry Nadler probably summed up the view, the majority view of our political leaders when he announced on the floor of the Capitol earlier this year, God's will is of no concern to this Congress. Well, you got that right, Mr. Nadler. In fact, the whole country is taking on that attitude. On March 29th, the Gallup poll announced that the number of Americans belonging to a church, synagogue, or mosque has fallen below 50% for the first time in history. Only 20 years ago, that figure was 70%. 
It hadn't moved in 60 years. From 1940 to the year 2000, church membership was about 70% of the American population. Today, that figure is 47%, and it's falling fast. We know it's going to keep falling because only 36% of those born after 1980 say that they are church members. You know what the fastest growing demographic is? It is the nuns, those who don't identify with any religion. Worse yet, many are now declaring that this is a good thing. On April 2nd, reporter Phil Zuckerman wrote an article for the Los Angeles Times. I actually forwarded it to all of our leaders. It's entitled, Why America's Record Godlessness is Good News for Our Nation. Really? <laughs> good news? The only good news I can see is that it makes the return of Christ all the sooner. Because, you see, Jesus made it clear that one of the key signs that his return is drawing near is that there will be a great falling away from the truth of God's word. Today, we're going to take a close-up look at this prophecy right here in Matthew 24, starting with verse 10. Jesus taught there would be three reasons that Christians will defect from the faith in growing numbers. We're going to look at these one by one. The first reason Christians will increasingly defect from the truth is because the cost will be too high. Jesus said, verse 10, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. You know, during the first two years of Jesus' ministry, the crowds continued to grow. Everyone loved his miracles. They loved the healings. They loved the free food. <laughs> I mean, he, he fed the 5,000 on one occasion. He fed the 4,000 on another occasion. Following Jesus was the in thing to do. Jesus was cool. He was the talk of the town until opposition arose. For the first time, the followers of Jesus had to count the cost. During the end times, Jesus said, the love of most will grow cold. Some will be like Peter, who denied his Lord in a moment of weakness, but later was restored and reconciled and went on to be a mighty warrior for his master. Others will be like Judas, who was a counterfeit believer through and through. As long as it looked like Jesus was on the rise, Judas was willing to tag along. But the moment the tide turned, he was ready to cut a deal for a measly 30 pieces of silver. Jesus taught that we need to count the cost. In Luke 14, 28, he said, suppose one of you wants to build a tower Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? 
And then Jesus clarified that we have to be willing to give up everything in order to follow him. You see, there is a paradox at work here. Salvation is completely free. The price tag of sin is paid entirely by Jesus and his blood. But on the other hand, following Jesus costs you everything you have. For Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In that way, it is sort of analogous to marriage, which is also free, but it costs you everything, doesn't it? Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a whole book about this, The Cost of Discipleship. Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Nazi Germany. He gradually became convinced that Jesus was calling him to oppose Hitler, so he joined the resistance. And he did it out of love for Jesus. For Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Bonhoeffer was eventually arrested, placed in a concentration camp where he was killed only days before the camp was liberated by American soldiers. My favorite book, highly recommended about Bonhoeffer, is told through the lens of an older female friend of Dietrich's. It's entitled Matriarch of Conspiracy, Ruth von Kleist. Ruth's family introduced Dietrich to those who were involved in three attempts to kill Hitler and overthrow the Nazis. It's a powerful story of counting the cost to follow Christ. Another man who counted the cost was Jim Elliott, the young missionary pilot who was martyred along with four of his fellow missionaries when they made attempts to bring the gospel to the Aka Indian tribe in Ecuador in 1956. Jim's widow tells the story in her book, Through Gates of Splendor. I love the famous quote by Jim Elliott. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Today, you can read the journals of Jim Elliott at the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. A whole generation of missionaries were inspired by Jim and his friends to take the gospel to the nations. Can I ask you today, have you counted the cost? Have you counted the cost? Are you willing to give your all for Christ you see, folks, we need to ask these questions a lot. We need to give them a lot of thought because at the end times, the vast majority will conclude the cost is too high. And that is the first reason there will be large-scale defections among professing Christians. Now let's move to the second reason that many will defect. It's because the lies They'll just be too clever. Look at verse 11. Jesus said, many false prophets will appear and they will deceive many people. These false prophets will claim, of course, to be true prophets. They will claim to speak for God, but they're actually counterfeits. 
and they will deceive many, or you could translate that, they will cause many to err. The Bible teaches that Satan presents himself as an angel of light. That's what Lucifer means, an angel of light. He is a master liar, far more clever than we are. In fact, we are helpless against him apart from the power of Christ. Jared Wilson wrote a whole book about this, The Gospel According to Satan, Eight Lies About God That Sound Like the Truth. Here are the eight lies. Jared writes a chapter about each one because each one is, it's partially true. You know, if you're going to tell a lie, you have to have some truth in there. Partially true, and see, that's why it makes it so convincing. Lie number one is this. God just wants you to be happy. This is the lie behind the gay rights movement. It is the lie behind the transgender movement. It is the lie behind whatever forbidden fruit Satan entices us with. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever thought to yourself, if I only had blank, then I'd finally be happy? What would you put in that blank? If I only had a brand new pontoon. <laughs> I look at my neighbor's new pontoon. You know, you see, now what, is, what would you put in there, okay? If I only had blank. Oh, if I was only married, if I was only, if I only had kids, if, if, if I was only retired, if I was only working again. <laughs> and you can go on and on. Now, we do have to admit that there's a kernel of truth in that lie. God does want you to be happy. He does. That is why Jesus said, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for what is right and pleasing to God, for they will be satisfied deep down inside. You'll be content. You'll have peace in your soul. Let's move to the lie number two. You only live once. In the movie Dead Poets Society, Robin Williams plays a teacher who stands on his desk and tells his students, carpe diem, seize the day. And again, there's an element of truth in that. God does want us to seize the day. That's why the Bible says, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. But you know what? Satan likes to twist this idea to entice us to fill our lives with foolish things because, well, time's a burning. You know, we don't know how many, how many times, we, you know, how much time we have. Now that may, may actually make sense if we only did live once. But the Bible says something else. The Bible says we live twice. We live once on this earth and that we live once more in either heaven or hell. There is an afterlife. That's the gospel truth. Let's move to lie number three. 
You need to live your truth as if we could all choose our own truth. Satan's made a lot of hay on this lie, hasn't he? But the Bible makes it clear that truth is not relative. It does not change from generation to generation. That's why we can use a Bible, parts of it, that were written 3,500 years ago. And it's still relevant today. Truth does not change. Rather, truth is objective. What is true is true. What is not is not. This lie ties in very closely with the next lie, that your feelings are reality. Man, I'm glad that one's not true. (laughs) If you're like me and you have wrestled with the depths of depression, the only thing that got me through was hope. That's what got Job through his depression also. In Job 19.25, Job writes, remember he writes this in the middle of God has taken everything from him. And yet he says, but I know that my Redeemer lives and I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him and not as a stranger. My heart longs within me. Your feelings are not reality. Let's move to lie number five. Your life is what you make it. (laughs) Uh, Of course, no one wants to waste their life on trivia, you know. You don't want anybody to say at your funeral, well, you know, he watched a lot of TV. (laughs) You know, we all want to live a life that counts, right? But the key to doing this is understanding that we are totally unable to do this apart from Christ radically changing our life from the inside out. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus seemed to be doing quite well on his own. I mean, he was the chief rabbi in Israel. Everybody, you know, was hanging on every word he said. But he knew that something was missing. He needed to be born again. Ultimately, life is not what you make it. Life is what he makes it. Line number six. Oh, does Satan use this one? You need to let go and let God. (laughs) Now, again, there's a kernel of truth in that. God certainly doesn't want us to be consumed with worry. But there's a problem with that. Because, folks, God wants us to be active and not passive. Fighting spiritual battles is hard work. We go to war, is what the Bible says. Read Ephesians chapter 6. It's all about putting on the full armor of God. And we make every effort to add to our faith. That's what 2 Peter chapter 1 teaches. Putting your mind in neutral That's not a good thing. It's a recipe for temptation. When you put your mind in neutral is when the evil one comes knocking on the door. So don't let Satan deceive you with letting go and letting God. In this world, the battle is ongoing, and we can't let our guard down. This leads right into lie number seven. 
This is a big one today. The cross is not about wrath. Satan's made a lot of high, uh, hay on this lie. Whole denominations have fallen for this lie. You can walk into countless churches throughout Minnesota, probably the, even the majority of churches in Minnesota, and you will hear variations of this lie. Alyssa Childers wrote a whole chapter about this in her book, Another Gospel. Her pastor, who she thought was an evangelical, was teaching that Jesus didn't pay the price for your sin. Jesus died, rather, to show you how much he loves you. By the way, that's completely true. But there's more. There's a greater reason that Jesus died. You see, that isn't the whole truth. A few pastors have gone so far as to describe God sacrificing his own son as divine child abuse or cosmic child abuse. Most preachers wouldn't use such wording. It would be too scary for their people. But that is exactly what they mean. God wouldn't do that to his own son. I love the story that is told of Billy Graham's first preaching tour in England. The year was 1955. Billy was only 37 years old. His critics were attacking him as a spiritual lightweight. And to counter the criticisms, Billy filled his preaching with quotes from famous theologians. His first four nights and all of his famous quotes were a flop. Very few people got saved. In response, Billy threw out his notes, all of his highfalutin quotes, and he simply preached on the blood of Christ. That night, over 400 young men and women came to Christ, including a graduate of the prestigious Cambridge University. They later asked that graduate, what was it about Billy's preaching that night? And he said, all I remember is walking out of that great hall and for the first time in my life thinking, Jesus really died for me. He died for me. His blood paid the price for my sin. The eighth lie that Jared writes about is that God helps those who help those themselves. One poll showed 82% of Americans believe that verse is in the Bible. <laughs> it isn't. <laughs> Instead, the Bible says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what the Bible says. You see, Satan's a great deceiver, isn't he? As we get closer and closer to the end times, we have to prepare for the fact that more and more professing Christians are going to defect. First, they're going to defect because the cost is too high. And second, they're going to defect because the lies, they're just too clever. But there is a third reason that many, most, will defect. And it's because the evil is too overwhelming. Do you ever feel like this guy right there? <laughs> you know? 
Verse 12, Jesus says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus warns us at the end of the age, evil is going to come like a tidal wave. It will seem unstoppable. It will overwhelm every segment of society. It'll overwhelm the educational institutions. Every Christian working in the field of public education today is feeling the pressure. My daughter taught for three years. She said, you could feel the pressure. The union was asking her. She, she was teaching when during the, uh, the vote on the marriage amendment here in Minnesota, the union had endorsed the no on the marriage amendment, had endorsed gay marriage. And she said, I can't do that. You know, I'm at odds with my own union. My sister taught for many years. It was hard. There was pressure on you. Pressure to pretend that it's not really as bad as it appears. Every Christian working today in the field of counseling is feeling the pressure. I was talking to a couple of professors, St. Cloud State University. They were working in the marriage and family department. They were evangelical Christians. They said the pressure is enormous. It's enormous. Again, the pressure to look the other way. The pressure, there are certain things you cannot say. <clears throat> In fact, many circles, there's growing pressure to use certain pronouns to affirm someone's preferred identity. If you don't do that, you're on the blacklist. Virtually every area of society is feeling this pressure. The field of medicine, the field of science, the field of business and economics, the field of entertainment. Read some of the testimonies of Bible-believing Christians who are actors and actresses. They will tell you, Jim Caviezel, you will tell you the pressure they're feeling. The field of arts and literature and movies, even social media and YouTube and Twitter and various other forms of communication, increasingly they are being monitored for any ideology that challenges political correctness. As never before, folks, morality is a moving target. I can see this as I read the Star Tribune every day. Seldom does a week go by without seeing the frontiers of moral boundaries being pushed back. A few weeks ago, I read an article about a new professor. He began, uh, she began teaching at the University of Minnesota. She was asked a question about pornography, and she said, we need to teach, I actually had to look this up, make sure I didn't misquote this. We need to teach people ways to consume porn in a healthy way, unquote. I took a look at that, and I thought, boy, I've never seen that before in a newspaper. I've never seen anybody say such a thing. You know, it wasn't long ago when nearly everyone was in agreement that porn was universally bad. It was especially degrading to women. 
But folks, that's no longer the case. Now intellectual elites have decided, well, there's, there's good porn over here and there's bad porn. And, it, you know, it's a whole bunch of things. There's good gambling, there's bad, there's good marijuana, there's bad, you know, it, that's, that's the world that we live in today. Now here in Matthew 24, Jesus warns us that this downhill slide is not only going to continue, folks, it's going to accelerate. That's what he says. The Apostle Paul warned us in 2 Timothy 3.1. He says, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. What does that look like today? <laughs> and then Paul says this, have nothing to do with them. Have nothing to do with them. Praise God, Jesus also assures us that not everyone will succumb. Jesus said, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. There will be a remnant that stands firm to the end and they will be saved. In fact, it's even better than that because next week we are going to focus in on the next sign of our Lord's return. You can look on at verse 14 because there's going to be a great revival and we're going to talk about that next week. I close with this. I want to tell you about a young man who stood firm for the Lord in the midst of a very evil age. A few weeks ago, Pastor Jeff ran off an article that he had been reading, made a copy for me. The title was 10 Things You Should Know About the Welsh Revival of 1904 to 1906. You see, Pastor Jeff and I have been praying for several years now that we would have the joy of seeing one more gigantic spiritual revival in our lifetimes. Both Jeff and I had the joy of experiencing powerful revivals when we were in high school in the 1970s. Both of us have said that there hasn't been anything to match that throughout our lives. and We want to see that happen again. Oh, do we want to see that. My graduating year, there were two Christians in my class. You could walk down the halls of that school, Mot the old Motley High School, which is no longer there. <laughs> and uh, you could walk down the halls, and there, and there was swear word after swear word after swear word. One of my buddies, very unlikely person to get saved, got saved. Two years later, he said, you could walk down those same hallways, Motley High School, not hear a single swear word. I said, well, how in the world do you enforce that? He said, we just push them up against the locker and we say, we don't swear here. I said, well, you might want to use a little better, a little more tact. <laughs> but, but that is how much things had changed in a two-year period of time. God can do amazing things. You know what, folks? He can do it here in the Heartland area. We're praying for that. We're praying for that. Back in the year... 
1890, the British province of Wales was spiritually dead. A 12-year-old boy named Evan Roberts began working in the coal mines. That's what they did in those days. As soon as you were physically able, they put you in the coal mines. And he began the following year, 1891, he began praying for God to send a mighty spiritual awakening upon his beloved homeland, the province of Wales. And you know what? He prayed that same prayer for revival every single day for 13 years. By the time Evan Roberts was 26 years old, he was preparing to be a pastor. One night, early in the year 1904, Evan had a vision. He said, quote, I was taken up to a great expanse without time or space. It was communion with God. I was frightened. So great was my shivering that I rocked the bed and woke up my brother who grabbed a hold of me thinking I was ill. After that experience, I was awakened every night, a little after one o'clock. This was the most, this was most strange, for through the years I slept like a rock. No disturbance would awaken me. From that hour, I was taken up into divine fellowship for about four hours. What it was, I cannot tell you, except that it was divine. And this went on for three months. Out of the depth of these experiences, Evan Roberts, 26 years old, began to preach. He wasn't brilliant. He wasn't eloquent. But his audiences were captivated because they could see this man had been with God. He dreaded publicity, didn't like newspaper reporters. He shunned praise and adulation. If he ever sensed that people had come to see or hear him only, he would withdraw and refuse to preach. He even refused to be photographed. Had a hard time getting this photograph. There isn't many of him. Meanwhile, the Spirit of God fell on the tiny province of Wales. 70,000 came to faith in Christ in the first two months. Isn't that amazing? You know, when we were changing our church name to Heartland, we, uh, we estimated, we did a lot of study, 50-mile radius of our church right here, there's about 80,000 souls that will spend eternity somewhere. And we would love for it to be up there. 80,000 souls. 70,000 came to Christ in the first two months, over 100,000 during the course of the revival. So powerful was the work of God, policemen had nothing to do. No crimes were committed. Tell that to Minneapolis. <laughs> The courts were empty. The judges had time to play cards. Saloons and bars went out of business. Old debts were paid. And profanity 
disappeared. The story is told that the poor horses who had become accustomed to responding to their master's swearing were totally confused. <laughs> Friends, it lasted two years. Would you like to see that happen here? Man, oh man, I'd love to see that happen here. Would you join us in praying that it happens here? And especially June 3rd, Thursday, pray and fast with us that day. Come and join us that night as we storm the gates of heaven. Praise his name.